Hey, we've been in the process. Let me say number two. How many of you are here on Thursday night at prayer? Not to, yeah. Awesome time, right? I would just say this. We had, that is my, and, and this is me personally, the most enjoyable time of prayer we had at Vintage since I've been here. It's probably the, the largest group we've ever had come to prayer uh, ever at Vintage. And I want to say that excites me more than anything else that we've had going on the last four and a half years. I love to see people who will come together and pray. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the disciples coming together before Pentecost, asking God's spirit to move in power and asking God and asking God and unifying themselves, waiting for his presence to come. And that excites me. And so I want to encourage you just every once in the first uh, the first uh, Thursday of every month to get together and pray. And we believe that what is birthed out of our time at Vintage is birthed out of our time of prayer, both corporately and then individually. So I want to encourage you uh, to, to put that on your calendar for next month. And uh, we'll let you know that it's actually it's not the first Thursday. I think the first Thursday is July 4th. So be the second, but obviously we'll let you know all about that. So just keep in the loop about that. All right. Hey, we've been talking uh, for the last several weeks uh, about uh, the desert, right? And we said last week, you know, the desert's one of those things. Sometimes it's hard to get our hands around and to get our head around. Say, what do you mean by desert? How does it apply to my life? Because I don't see any dirt. I don't see any sand, right? And but the idea of, of spiritually speaking, the desert, the desert is a place where God, where He takes us. Where he and he allows us to become hungry and thirsty and to awaken us to the fact that only he can quench that thirst and and satisfy the hunger. You see, I don't know if you know this or not, but God loves us too much to allow us to stay in the status quo of our life. Do you know what I mean by status quo? That place in life where, where you do everything you've always enjoyed and doesn't quite satisfy as much as it used to, right? That moment you sit there and you go, why am I even here, right? Or the, you ask the proverbial question that's so, re- that's so uh, prevalent in our culture today, what's my purpose in life? And we ask all these questions, and those questions all point to God taking to a place where nothing satisfies and nothing gratifies. And you begin to say, God, I'm not satisfied with what's going on in my life and where I am and what I'm doing. God, what is this? I'm so frustrated. I'm so anxious. I'm so worried. Oh, what's going on? What's going on? And God said, I've taken you into the desert where nothing satisfies because I'm not satisfied either with the status quo of your life. I'm I love you too much to leave you in your anxiety. I love you too much to leave you in this place of worry. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I love you too much to let you not hunger for my presence. So I'm going to take you to a desert. And we all know a desert, practically speaking. What's there? Absolutely nothing. All right? There's nothing there to satisfy you. You go out and you start like, that's why you've seen the movies. People pick up sand and start eating it as if it's food or water, right? Like, yeah, spit it out. Why? Because sand doesn't satisfy and we get to this place, and we get to that, and, we, and what do we look for in the desert? We look for an oasis. We look for the thing that can actually quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. And Jesus says, ding, 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 that's me. It's my gift. I know it's hard in the desert, but it allows all of these things, status quo, to, to come to the surface and realize nothing satisfies but me. And that's where he has this advantage. And so this morning, we're going to spend some more time talking about it. But I want to begin by telling you one more story from India. Is that okay with you all? All right. So let me tell you one more story from our, my, our time in India. 
And the idea of telling the story is because I, because when I heard the story, it awakened something in me. It made me hungry. If you don't know, we went to India a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago. We were there for two weeks. We saw 15 Hindu kids who never, who had never, um, never heard the gospel preached, the good news of Jesus preached. 15 Hindus gave their lives to Jesus. I mean, radical, just crazy, hearing the voice of God, wooing them to himself, and they crying out saying, I know I'm going to go home and suffer and possibly beaten for giving my life to Jesus, but he's worth it, and I've just known him for two days. How awesome is that, right? Real, authentic life conversion. Let's just press pause and say, do you know Jesus that way, <laughs> right? And if we don't, guess what? You can. That's the beautiful part of the desert. So anyway, so we're there at, and we're there at camp, and, and you got to know there's a, there's, a, there's a kid there. So the reason, the te- reason to tell the story is to awaken hunger, awaken thirst, that there's something more out there than you've ever known before. And so, so we're sitting there one day, and there's this boy there named Juan. Juan is one of the older kids in the home. He's from Manipur, which is around the border of India and Nepal. He's a good kid. He loves Jesus, right? He is a worship leader. Every morning he was part of the worship team and literally lead us from guitar and some of the songs of worship in our time with these kids in India. It's a powerful and a wonderful, wonderful time, right? And Juan is leading us. He's a guy of prayer. He hears the voice of God. But let me tell you something about Juan, according to his mom, Tammy, he's not very generous, right? Do you know, like a lot of those kids his age, like 8, 17, 18, 19 years old, they're just not uber generous with their stuff. He's just one of the, he's a good kid, right? Like at least the qualifying, he's a good kid, but he's just not very generous. So in fact, when they take up offerings in the home to give to the, to the, the, the needy, like to the, this, the ministries they're involved with at Karube, where some people give like $20, 50 bucks, like he gives like 50 cents or a dollar, right? He's just not super generous, right? Does that, does that remind you of anybody else? Okay, anyway. So he's just, so he's not super generous. And so one day there was probably the second or third day we were there. I forget which day exactly. He's in, he's in, he's in this time. And all of a sudden God speaks to me. Here's the voice of the Lord speaking and says, Moana, I want you to give your MP3 player to Vel. Now you got to recognize about this MP3 player. Moana had just gotten a job. And he had been looking like it's one of those like like the uh, red, what is that the Red Rider BB gun you know that kid in that movie right the Christmas stories like he saw it in the book everything he looked at was the was the BB gun this was the MP3 player for him he was dying for the MP3 player he wanted the MP he was like he saved every dime he he made in the beginning of his job for the sole purpose of buying this MP3 player. And I don't know how much it cost, somewhere between 50 and 100 bucks. And he finally, that day came, he took his money, he walked in, he bought this MP3 player, he brought it home excited and downloaded 300 worship songs on it because he just wanted to be able to worship God whenever he wanted to. And he had his MP3 player, fantastic and wonderful. And God comes and speaks to him in the middle of worship one day, in the middle of prayer, and says, Juan, take your, your prized possession and I want you to give it to Val. So Juan walked over, saying, God, are you sure? He replied that prayer, are you sure, God, right? Walks over and hands it to him and says, here, God, here, Vel, I was praying and God told me to give you this MP3 player. It's powerful, right? That's just part of the story. So Vel receives it and Juan walks off. I'm maybe a little bit frustrated, like, God, are you sure? I'm not sure I made the right decision. I love the MP3 player. Vel walks off weeping and goes over to Tammy. You see, you're not going to believe what just happened. You see, Vel's story is this. It's a long story, but Vel is really connected in the home. He's actually one of the family support kids. And that 
uh, Karube supports him. He lives in abject poverty. He lives in a village with his dying mother. His, his father's already died. They live just in a hut. They have absolutely nothing. Any money that he has comes from Karube to send him to school and to give him clothes to where other than that he has nothing. He lives in a village with no Christians and no church, but he is a follower of Jesus. And so he said, Tammy, you're not going to what happened. I was praying two or three hours before, just before this moment, right? I was praying and telling God, God, it's so difficult following you, living where I live. But God, I want you to know I'm committed to following you no matter what. But I'm asking this, God, would you give me an MP3 player just so I can have some music to worship to that will focus my heart on Jesus? Or at least a CD player. And two hours later, Juan walks over and said, not only here's an MP3 player, but I've already downloaded 300 worship songs for you. Talk about a moment. Just watching, right? The power of God releasing. The thing I want you to recognize, I don't know about you, but that excites me. There's something, that's, there's something that stirs inside of me. It took me, a, took me a little bit of time to figure out what exactly that's stirring. It's a cool story, yes. But number one, how exciting is it to be one of those people who's used by God to answer someone else's prayer, but one didn't even know it? He walked away a little frustrated, like, God, are you sure that I make the right decision? Uh, there's a little bit of tension inside of me, but, but he was used by God to be someone's answer to a massive prayer. I want to be one of those people who is so hungry and thirsty for God and listening to him that I'm used again and again and again and again to be, to be the answer for someone else's prayer. That's number one. But number two, like, God, I so want to hunger you like Vel, that no matter what I will say, I'm committed, and I just want to be with you come to come hell or high water. I want to be one who's committed in such a way, God, that I'm praying with fervency, God, whatever it takes for me to be committed to you, would it be birthed in my life? This is what I believe God's doing in this season. This desert season, the season of, of connecting us to him, he's awakening us to being used by him, of, of being the answer to people's prayers. He's awakening us, right, to selflessness, because that's what it takes. If one has said, no, 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 this is my gift and my money, and it's for my worship and for me, then he would have completely missed being the answer that God had for Vel. And I don't want to be that. The desert awakens us to, self, to selfishness. We can die to it to awake to selflessness. And it also awakens us to our desire and our want and our need for his presence. This is what God is doing. The stirring this hunger inside of us. For the desert awakens us to the fullness of all that God has for us. And he simply asks that we would respond by submitting to him, by trusting him, and by believing him and following him. One clear scripture uh, we find in the Bible that talks about this nature of desert and this nature of, of dying to and, and wrestling through some of our, our issues that we wrestle with, right? The things that 
call, that hinder us, maybe things we have to wrestle through in the desert that may hinder our faithfulness, that may hinder us really diving into Jesus and being used by him is taken from Luke chapter four. In your Bibles, you can turn the, it's the, it's the three temptations that Jesus faced in the desert. I never read the story. I'm going to read bits and pieces of it to you, but I want to, I want to kind of begin by telling you this, that chapter three is a fantastic picture of who Jesus is and his, his obedience to, to his father. He comes down to the Jordan River and his cousin John is standing there. And John recognizes something happens. God speaks to him and he goes, oh, my gosh, this is the Messiah. My cousin is, my, is the Messiah. Are you kidding me? And he goes, this is the one I was speaking of whose who's, who's sandals I can't even tie, I can't even touch, right? And Jesus comes down and says, John, not only... Do I need you to do I not only do you need to bow down and tie my shoes more than that? I need you to baptize me. I need you to baptize me. I need to submit myself to this to the Lord in this. Right. He comes and he's baptized and he comes up out of the water and says, so the spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And so the voice came down from heaven. The father speaking to his son and said, you are my son in chapter three, whom I love with you. I am well pleased, right? You are my son whom I love and with you. I am well pleased. How awesome would that be to hear the voice of the father speaking down, not just for you to hear, but for everyone to hear like, oh, my gosh, he's pretty special. He's so special that in chapter four, father leads him to a special place. Let's look there. It says in chapter one of, uh, excuse me, in chapter four, verse one, it says, now Jesus, he's just been baptized, right? Jesus, he's full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. That seems like the perfect plan, right? Let me tell you how much I love you, and then I'm going to lead you into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Awesome plan, Father. Love it. No, man, I'll tell you what. If I would say, hey, are you sure about that, right? I don't really want to go into the desert. I don't really want to go there, right? Isn't that what we do when God begins to take us to these places where, where our, our worry and our anxiety and all this stuff begins to bubble up? I'm not sure I want to go there. You ever had anything in your life, in your past? You're like, I know I need to deal with that. I'm just not sure I want to go there. It's one of, that's what's happening right here. Listen, Jesus is fully God, yet he's fully man. It's a miraculous thing. And I want you to know that when Jesus went into this desert, into this difficult place, he did not go as God, Jesus. He went as man, Jesus. He went in and then he set aside his godhood so he could experience fully the weight of what it meant to be a human living in the desert facing hunger and facing thirst. He didn't get any kind of special priest says, well, I'm Jesus. Let me give me some bread, right? I'm Jesus. Angels, give me something, right? Whatever it is. Hey, Father, boo-boo, right here. Come on down. Just give me something. I need a big old Big Mac or something, right? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Whatever it may be. No, in the fullness of his manhood, right, his humanhood, he stepped into the desert. And for 40 days, could you imagine living in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and eating nothing while you're there? That's not a good time, right? That's not going to, oh, happy times. Woo, me and G, me and, me and father. No, no, no. Desert. He's experiencing the full weight of the desert. He's feeling the full weight physically. 
How many of you know if you're in a desert for 40 days, nothing to eat or drink, you're going to go crazy a little bit, right? Your mind's going to go, you know what I'm talking about. You're just like, how many of you, after like five hours of not eating, you're like, oh my gosh, we something to eat, right? This is what's happening. He's feeling, he's feeling the full weight of his humanhood in the desert. Thirst is pronounced. Hunger is pronounced. His need for comfort and safety is pronounced. And then Satan comes. In the moment right of his most physical limitation, the enemy comes and begins to throw out temptations and begins to throw out things. You've ever experienced that? Where you're sitting all of a sudden your mind's just bombarded with something, a temptation, something that you know that you shouldn't give into. You ever experienced that? And how difficult is that in the moment when I'm just most overwhelmed? And Satan comes. In chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, and he says this. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. See, the first temptation that Jesus faces is the temptation of our appetite. The temptation of our, or our appetites. We all understand our appetite, right? Our appetite is what drives us. It's the thing or the things we look to to have sustain us or to fill us. Each of us as human beings, we have an appetite for, for food. We have an appetite for water, and we've been designed by God to all have an appetite for sex, right? Food, water, and sex, we've all been given these appetites. They're a part of who we are by our nature, and we each have these appetites. But if we're honest, we all know that there are other appetites that, that drive us in life, things that we look to to, to have fill us or, or to sustain us. Some of those things, and they're, they're different for each of us, right? But some of them may have an appetite for power. If you're known anybody like that, maybe somebody who's your boss, they have an appetite for power. They make you submit to them. They're not nice to you because they're your boss, right? They have power. So we, each of us can have an appetite for power. We have, a, we have an appetite for wealth. And with the rich young ruler, right? Because what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus looks at him and says, take all your possessions and sell them and give them to the poor. Because he went away sad because he was a wealthy man. What you see in that is clear. He had an appetite for Jesus. He wanted the kingdom, right? But his appetite for his wealth exceeded that. It was, it was stronger. We see, we can continue on, right? We see an appetite for popularity. We all see this all the time, popularity. Or we have an appetite for comfort. We want to, we, that's why we have air conditioning. That's why we have heat. That's why we have all of these, we call them what are they, uh, um, luxuries in life. Right? Because we want to be comfortable at all times. We have an, we have an appetite for beauty. Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Each of us look in the mirror, and that's the thing we're looking at. God, I, I want to be as pretty as I was when I was 20. Right? We've got the 60 and 70 year old women. They're working really hard, right? And buying a lot of things to look like they were 20. Craziness. Why? Because there's an appetite for beauty that drives us in our lives. And let's be honest, we are the most, we are, we are all of us, most of us are driven by an appetite for entertainment. 
I mean, when's the last time you went 30 minutes without connecting to your with, connect with it by choice, connecting to your phone, connecting to your computer, to instant messaging, right, to texting, to something on the computer, reading the news, to the television, to the radio, whatever it may be. When's the last time by choice you went 30 minutes by and getting away with that? How many of you listen to the radio and text and do email on your way on the, in the car? Right? Because you're so connected, it's entertainment. Something has to be out here satisfying your dead time. You have an appetite, right? So the first temptation Jesus deals with is the temptation of our appetite, his appetite. This is the thing we deal with in the desert, our appetites. Jesus, listen, we go to the desert, what does he do? He exposes, he exposes in us what we mainly look at to gratify and satisfy us. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the primary things are in your life that you look to have satisfy you and gratify you in your time? Jesus takes us to the desert to show them to us. We know that when we begin to give ourselves to those things and they don't satisfy. When we begin to give ourselves to the things we normally look to to gratify us. And they just come back a little incomplete. And all of a sudden he says, this is where your appetite is. And I'm showing it to you and making you dissatisfied so that you will recognize that satisfaction is only found in me. He comes and he says, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. What does that mean? Well, John 4 tells us, 34 Jesus said, my food, the thing that satisfies or gratifies the thing that ultimately I eat of is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's to be about the things that God is about. Jesus, his life. Think about his life. Jesus was intimate with the Father. He had a love relationship with the Father. The Father says, this is my son whom I love. Why do you think Father just spoke that word, right? Jesus already knows a confirmation in his heart. Father loves me. I have an intimate relationship with him. And in my intimate relationship, that's, pri- that's, the, first, that's the first step. I have a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's primary. It's a priority. Then all of a sudden, as in, in the conversation we have in relationship, he speaks to me about his heart. The things that are on his heart. The things he's passionate about. He shares his dreams with me. And he says, now here's what I want you to do. And that's Jesus' food. To love God And to be obedient to him and follow him. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But the thing that sat, let me tell you something. We'll be satisfied in life. Love Jesus. Find out what's on his heart. Give yourself to those things. And you'll be the most satisfied and gratified you've ever been in your life. And you still may have no job, no marriage, and no child. Which are the things we primarily look at in life. Jesus is enough. Do you believe it? That's what he speaks to in our appetites. He can satisfy even when hell is breaking loose around. The second thing we see Jesus being tempted in, chapter 4, 6 and 8. And he said to him, actually, he's already taken him. He's kind of shown him all the kingdoms of the earth. Kind of, I don't know how that works. Sort of supernatural vision thing. Like, woo, right? Vision thing, right? So he says, he said, showed him all these things. He says, Enemy speaks, says, I will give you all of the, all their authority and splendor, right? All the kingdoms, all the rulers, I will give you, I will give you all their authority. I will give you all their splendor and power. It has been given to me 
and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The second temptation, it speaks to our devotion, speaks to our devotion, right? Our devotion drives our actions, right? You got married and you said in sickness and in health, forsaking all others and being faithful only to you all the rest of my life. I will love you, right? You're devoted to your spouse. Everything in life comes through the lens of recognizing you're no longer two people, but you're now two people who've become one. So I'm devoted to my spouse and I will be sure to, to care for my spouse and to, and to make sure that everything kind of goes to the filter of making sure my, that, that I'm doing this for my spouse or devotion to your children. I mean, dads, if someone attacks your children, what do you do? Do you put your hand up and say, oh, my gosh, that was funny. You just smacked them. No, you defend them. Why? Because you're devoted to your children. You will stand up for them. You will fight for them. That's why you that's why husband's wife, you work hard. Why? To provide for them a house. Right. And a roof over their heads and clothes to wear and food. Why? Because you're devoted to them. Why do you not just leave them at school for someone else? Why do you not just leave them the front doorstep of somebody else's house? Why? Because you're devoted to caring and providing for them. And as good Americans, I mean, we are devoted to America. What do you do with traitors? You hang them up. Right. That's what they used to do. You're a traitor. Take him out. Right. And we saw that in our culture in America, we don't like traitors. Why? Because we're devoted to our country. And we live in this devotion, our devotions. They they drive our actions. They just, they drive us. But I would say this in your life, and this is the primary temptation. And you need to hear this. God spoke this a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to say in a different way. The primary devotion that we have in our life, hear this, our primary devotion, this is going to be radical, like awakening for some of you. Your primary devotion in life is to yourself. Our primary devotion in life is always to self. We see it in the, here in Jesus, the temptation we find Jesus having to wrestle with is a devotion to himself. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is, is offered by Satan a shortcut. Remember, Jesus knew he was going to have to suffer. Satan knew that Jesus was going to have to suffer. He says, hey, I'll just offer you a shortcut. I'm going to appeal to yourself, your, your selfishness, right? Your self-comfort, your fighting for self. I'm going to appeal to self and tell you, if you just bow down to me, then I will go ahead and give you without any sacrifice. I'll go ahead and give you all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all power and I will give you all authority. It's the very thing that he's going to receive after he's crucified and resurrected. And he's giving him a shortcut. Why? Shortcuts appeal to you, don't they? No sacrifice and no work. I can just get what I want in life. And so Jesus is is his. his, If he had bowed down and worshipped Satan, there'd have been no heart devotion to Satan. All the all the heart devotion would have been to self. I'm going to bow down because of what I'm going to get from it. We understand that, right? We do things all the time to pacify somebody so we can get something from them. I go to my I got to, you know, whoever it may be and say, hey, yeah, yeah, I'll do this for you. Because at the end, you're going to get glory for people are going to talk about how great you were. You know, you know, people like that. You're never like that. I know. We appeal to our selfishness all the time. 
And so in this, we're having to deal with the devotion to self. Think about it. Who do you think most about in life? Yourself, right? Think about what, what, whose comfort do you fight for most? Yourself. And whose rights do you defend most passionately? Your own. Right. We defend ourselves. We fight for ourselves. We are most we think about ourselves all day long or we're thinking about somebody else and how they're affecting us. Usually I thought about someone else is how it impacts us and what I'm going to do when I get home, about how it impacts me. Right. We primarily think about ourselves and our devotion to self. Right. And so in this, the temptation from Satan was this about bowing down to him for his own selfish desires, his own self-devotion in a sense, worshiping himself. And we go to the desert, this is what happens. As we serve and gratify self, we in turn are bowing down and worshiping the enemy and living in sin. But the idea is this. Devotion to something other than self is ultimately God's call to devotion to him. And devotion to anything other than self, hear this, always feels like a risk. Devotion to anything other than self and our desires and our comfort and our financial security, all of those things always points to self and a devotion to self. Instead of saying, Jesus, I'm devoted to you and I will do whatever you tell me to do. And I don't know if you recognize, but that's always risk because what he may call us to sometimes is going to be risky and it literally may cost us our life, but that's okay because we get him. He is our portion and he's enough. So devotion to self, right? That's the, that's the second temptation we have to deal with in the desert. The third thing is found in chapter four, nine through 12. It says the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written in Psalm, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he said later, he goes, now get away from me. And he left for a, a more opportune time to test Jesus, which basically means Satan came back somewhere in the next three years of Jesus' life. To try to test him and tempt him again to be disobedient. All right. All right. So I want you to see this. There's all these things we have to wrestle with. And the temptation we see here and hear this is the temptation of control. It's the temptation of control. Do I control my own life? Or do I try to control God? Do I try to get him to do what I want him to do? Or do I trust him? Am I de- my, in my devotion, am I, am I committed to him? And do I give him control of my life? Do I trust him? Will I give him control when things are going on that I don't like or did not choose for myself? We see this, right? The temptation and testing. People, people can tempt or test God. And in this sense, what they're doing, people are provoking God through unreasonable demands contrary to faith. They're demanding God. They're doubting God. They're frustrated at God. They're throwing accusations out to God 
but they have no faith. We see this in the life of the Israelites in the desert. I know Scott brought up the scripture to you before. I'm just going to restate it again. Remember in, in, in the Exodus, they, had, they were going from camp. They were, picking, they were going camping somewhere. How many of you have ever been camping in your life? You know what you have to do in camp, right? You go camp. You unload your car. You put everything down. You set up your tent, right? And then what do you do? You sit there. <laughs> and then you usually eat and drink something, right? You eat and drink, come to the campsite. That's what they do. They would come. The Israelites would, boom, and they would make camp. Right? I don't know what that noise was. I just made it up. Okay, so they come and they sit down. They camp, right? They camp right here. And then what they do? They open up their tents. They start the, so they start the fire and they eat something and drink something. So they come into the, they come. They sit camp one day. Also they look and they go, Oh, we have nothing to eat, Moses. There you go. You brought us out here to die. Oh my gosh, where's your God? And all of a sudden, Jesus, God shows up and brings them quail and brings them manna. Right? We have no idea what manna is. They didn't either. You know what manna means? What is this? That's all it means, right? What is this? We're eating, we're, what are you eating? What is this, right? So they're eating something. They're eating manna there. We don't know. It's sort of like loafy, bready. I don't know what it is, right? But they eat it, sustains them. It has vitamins and minerals in it, right? Some B12 in there, some antioxidants. I don't know what they have, right? So all the stuff going on in there, and they're eating. It's good. God's providing for them. But So they, and they have water there already. So they pick up camp, right? Next day, make another camp. They get there. They have food. But guess what? This time, they have no water, right? They're so happy. God provided for them. Everything's going well in life until all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they get there and they don't have what they need. And Exodus 17, 7 says, Moses called the place where they camped Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, seriously, where is he? Is he really here? Where are you, God? Hey, right? Testing God by their doubt and their faithlessness. Here, in the, here lie, herein lies the heart of what God exposes in the desert. Do we trust him with our lives? Do we trust him with the outcomes in our life? Or do we try to control him through manipulation and guilt and throwing accusations out? It says here, they were happy, right? They were happy. The Israelites were happy until all of a sudden they didn't get what they wanted. Or what they thought they deserved. You ever been like that? Anybody like that? Yeah, they're happy. They love Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Until all of a sudden something happens. Like, where are you, God? I don't think you ever really loved me, right? And all of a sudden doubt and faithless. I don't even believe in God anymore. What happened? Literally, you just got a little fender bitter. Yeah, but if God were really God, he wouldn't have that happen. Oh, my gosh. Where is he? He must not even really love me or be real. And all of a sudden, doubt and faithlessness. Now, there's a, there is an honest side of this. And God, I'm struggling. I come in faith. I want to believe and trust. God, I, I do in my heart of hearts, but I'm so struggling, God, because these things are happening. Versus, and you know the difference, right? The accusatory, automatically, just gut instinct reaction. Oh, doubt God. Don't like him anyway. You never really liked him. He must have never loved me. Oh, you're a terrible God. And we begin to argue and complain and quarrel. Do you see the difference of coming in humility or coming in pride because we've lost control? We want control. We want to control God and make him do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. And when he doesn't respond the way we want him to, we just begin to doubt. 
Well, you never real in the first place, right? Testing him. But in the desert, what God wants to do, he wants us to die to our selfishness. And he wants trust in him and belief in him and faith in him to be birthed. That we say, God, like Tamil said last week, remember I told you, Tamil, the 17, 18 year old kid, mother had already died a horrendous death and his father had just died, not a Christian. And he had not been able to go to him and share the faith, share Jesus with him. And he's weeping because he found that his father had died a not a very good death. He's weeping and weeping. Oh, I did not get a chance to share. He did not know Jesus and all this. And he puts his head up through his tears and says, But I know he is for me. I know that he loves me. And I will not be offended. See, that's what God's doing in the desert. That no matter what happens... We will not be offended. We will trust him and will believe him. And the proper response in this, just so that you know it, is to come in humility saying, God, I want to be honest. I love you, but I'm struggling. Instead of coming and saying, well, I never liked you anyway, and I hate you, God. Testing him. Because we don't trust his control. We trust our own. You see, in the desert, in the desert, he deals with our appetites. Hey, what ultimately satisfies you? We need, to, we need to ask the question. We need to let God deal with that. We need to get to the point and say, God, am I really only looking to you to ultimately satisfy me in life? Or God, in my appetites then, God, am I fully devoted to you? Am I devoted primarily in my actions to self? And God, am I testing you by not trusting you, by not believing in you and continually doubting you in faithlessness? God, in this season, would you take the temptations, because we deal with these every day, guys. Every day. And we need to say, Jesus, simply awaken me to the temptations, God, so that I can choose you and all of them. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We confess, Lord, that we fail every day in some form or fashion. I praise you then for your cross. I praise you for your grace, God. It's that you say, I'm expecting you in your, in, in your fallenness, your humanity, this broken humanity you live in, to make some bad decisions here or there. But I'm here for you. I'm going to be faithful in your faithlessness. I'm going to be hopeful in your hopelessness. But, Father, I pray that that you would mature us because that's the point of the desert. You mature us. You make it, God, where we don't do that anymore. Where we did begin to make right decisions, where we begin to not give into temptation. We begin to stand on the rock of Jesus that's solid and say, no, I will not bow down to anyone other than Jesus. I will serve only him and I will give all of my appetites for him, to him. Father, this morning, I pray that you would challenge us and you would shape us in Jesus name. Amen.